It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hello and welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America, and I'm here today with Rabbi Daniel Hartman, president of the Shalom Hartman Institute, joining us from Jerusalem, and Dr. Rivka Press-Schwartz, associate principal of general studies at SAR High School and a fellow here at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. We're recording today on Thursday morning, March 19th, from New York, but of course, all of us are recording remotely in this new normal in light of COVID-19 and in practice of good social distancing. Today, we'll be talking about the way that our world is changing quite quickly because of COVID-19, in particular, the way our institutions are responding or not responding. And by institutions, we mean our local community institutions, our organizations, our schools, and here at the Shalom Hartman Institute. But also, we're going to try to look at some of the macro questions that our people in Israel and North America, and we as the Jewish people are facing in trying to uh, reckon with this new normal and what we see among our leaders and what could be different. Let me start with you, Rivka. Your school has been in the eye of the storm uh, in that is the first Jewish institution in North America to be hit in a serious way by this virus, and in many ways, one of the first institutions in America at all. So uh, first of all, tell us how you're doing, and then maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you're seeing and learning from uh, the leadership that you and your colleagues are exercising at SAR High School in response to this moment. Well, the question of how we're doing is that when we went into quarantine first on March 3rd or 4th, we were all alone, and it seemed like a strange and solitary experience. And by the time we came out of quarantine on March 17th, the entire world seemed to have joined us. And it was a very different experience doing this as a we few, we proud, we merry band of brothers all alone and doing it as part of a global pandemic and a citywide and a statewide shutdown, which it's a lot harder and a lot less pleasant. And it doesn't have any of the redeeming virtues that the sense of us few huddled alone together had. But having said all of that, I would say a few things about leadership that I watched unfold both the leadership of my own institution and watching the political leadership of New York State primarily since the outbreak was in Westchester County. We are located in New York City. We crossed two jurisdictions, and so really New York State was coordinating this. The first one was the difference. I'll talk about my own community for a minute. My school community has weathered a number of other crises in which there was some moral culpability on the part of the school or the school leadership. And there's a world of difference between a crisis, which is an external event that none of us could control, plan for, know was coming, and we just had to keep meeting the challenges of the way we felt about that, the way other people responded to it. And when the crisis was a crisis of someone within the school community doing something terrible, did we do everything we could have done, should have done, should we have done something different? And so having experienced both of those kinds of crises in a leadership position in a school community, they feel very different. So that's one thing that I would say about that. And I articulated that even early on, the sense of how different this felt 
than some of those other crises that we've gone through. You get a lot more positive, you know, reinforcement when you're handling a crisis. You have no possible uh, sense of moral culpability. Something else, which I think is very important, which we've watched unfold in a lot of places, but which my school community had a much clearer sense of our school leadership, our principals had a much clearer sense of, was there wasn't enough time to sit around and figure how to get it exactly right. You had to do something. That first morning when we found out at six something in the morning that a parent in the school had tested positive for coronavirus, we needed to make the call of whether we're turning buses around that are already going and picking kids up and just closing school for the day. At that point, we didn't have guidance from health departments or anybody else. We just had to make a call. And then the successive series of first we were told we'd be closed in quarantine for three days. We were actually allowed out of quarantine by the state health department for one day, put back into quarantine for another 10 days to complete the 14-day quarantine. And we just kept seeing a lot of the perfect being the enemy of the good. If you spend enough time to wait until it's perfectly clear what to do, by then it's too late to take action. And there are some other segments of the Orthodox community in which it's become clear that the choice to take action was delayed until it was so obvious what the action needed to be, by which point the doctors and epidemiologists were warning that, you know, the virus had been spreading in the community sort of silently or unnoticed for a long time. And so that willingness, both on the part of the school leadership and on the part of the State Department of Health, to keep taking action, even if it wasn't the perfect action, but it was something, even if we weren't certain about what we were doing, but we were trying something, turned out to be a really important thing to do. Definitely want to come back to some of the questions around getting it right and guidance or lack of guidance from other authorities who, who could tell us what to do or not. And certainly I want to get back to the question of the particular dimension of how this is playing out in the Orthodox community where there are really different theories of who the authority figures are supposed to be and what it means to be in relationship to those authority figures. But I, I would love to hear from you, Daniel, from your vantage point in Jerusalem. Again, also how you're doing, how your family is doing, uh, and also to maybe reflect a little bit on leading an institution in a moment like this, how do you make quick decisions? Who are you looking to for guidance? And what are the principles that are animating the difficult choices that have to be made right now? Um, I really appreciate both questions you're asking because they're very connected to each other. And when you think about your institution, in these moments, you have to realize that it's not about your institution. And that the first question to ask people is how you're doing. And when you remember that, then the decisions you make in your institution might be more sensitive, more decent, and reflect the complexity of what people are feeling. You know, I like everybody else. We're all trained to say, how are you? Fine, thank you. So I could also say, fine, thank you. Um, But I'm not fine. I'm like everybody else. We're worried. We all try to hold on to some myths of stability. That's the way we get through the day, knowing fully well that throughout our lives, There's very little, which is most important to us, that we actually have control over. And at moments like these, it's much harder to maintain that myth of stability. You know, it comes down to, you have a child who doesn't live in your house. She lives in Tel Aviv, and she's coming home for Shabbos. Now, you know there's a nuclear family who everybody's met, and you can control it. Who has she met? You can't control it, so what do you do? Do you try? Do you not try? How do you maintain friendships, family relationships? What does it really mean at this moment? We just don't know. And I would say that one of the most important things for institutional leadership, and uh, you and I, we've, I think we've spoken a lot about this and tried to exercise it here at the Institute. It's about how the Institute responds, but it's first and foremost how the Institute doesn't continue to function at these times. How do we take care of our community? And if we take care of our community, then the second question is, then within that context, how do we who love this institute and care about its mission and its work maximize 
our effectiveness at this time, knowing fully well that we're of secondary importance. And so I think that's the challenge of leadership right now. Care about your, care about your people, care about those whose lives are in your hands and decisions that you make have significant impact on the way and how they weather this crisis. This, no, we're not okay, thank you. It's interesting. I, I identify with that deeply, and I also feel simultaneously a sense of nothing that we're doing is as important as keeping people healthy and safe. If you work in the business of the kind of education that we do, which is not primary education, it's not preschool, there are pieces of what we do that I feel sometimes are a luxury item, even though if you run an organization like ours and think that what you do is a luxury item, you'll never be good at what you do. You won't be passionate enough. In other words, it can either be a luxury item or it's really essential to be in the business of ideas. So I, I feel a little bit of a push and pull on that. And I also, as a parent right now, I'm watching both of the schools that my kids are in, uh, one kid at SAR Academy, which pivoted remarkably quickly into this new learning through Zoom digital age, and two of my kids at a school that my wife runs, Bay Rabban Day School, which just opened their digital environment, Bay Rabban Ba'anan, on Monday. And there, too, trying to ask, is it supposed to be really good? Is it supposed to be school? Are we really trying to achieve the same educational objectives? Or do we kind of let ourselves uh, not worry so much about the quality of what's happening because we're actually fundamentally in a different environment. So I think that all of us who run educational institutions are caught a little bit in that moment. I agree. It's not about finding a balance. Because if you find a balance, you're in the wrong place in both cases. It's about understanding that you have two core, very different responsibilities, or three or four different responsibilities. And these types of times require a schizophrenia, going back and forth. Not finding this balance, because in the balance, you're not going to meet any of those needs. And holding on to all of them, knowing that no single one is the totality, I think that's the responsibility of leadership. So I wonder, though, whether as educators, and I'd love to hear from you, Rivka, on this, I wonder whether as educators there is some aspect of what we're doing right now which is basically trying to preserve normalcy for kids so that they should have some continuity, or whether there are some special educational opportunities that are made manifest by moments like this that actually could be really quite transcendent in terms of the kind of work that we're doing. You and I had an exchange about civics and democracy, where you said, this is the moment right now, and this is what you teach at SAR High School, and through civic spirit and elsewhere, bringing civic education into religious school environments. I'm curious whether you think that there is real actual opportunity to break through on the importance of public health, on the importance of democracy as real existential issues for our kids to be learning and for us as Jewish institutions to be taking seriously right now. I think there are two different questions here. One is what we're thinking about and teaching about at a, a higher level, maybe to adults, to a broader communal level. And the other is what I think is my mission every day, going into my virtual classroom, into my Zoom room with my students. And those aren't always the same thing. I actually teach an APUS government and politics class. And I said to the students, it seems to me to be so beside the point right now to be talking about open primaries and closed primaries. There are so many issues about government and politics and budgeting and power and all kinds of other things that should be on the table. And I really feel like we should reorient the course to focus on all these immediately relevant questions. And a whole bunch of my students said, please don't do that. All we do is coronavirus 
day and night and it's all we think about and we worry about and we hear about it's all anyone can talk about and there's nothing we would like more than to spend 40 minutes in your zoom room talking about closed primaries and open primaries and whatever comes next in the government curriculum and that was really interesting for me because what to me had felt like this really powerful educational opportunity to explore very important issues for them was yet again we're talking about the same thing that fills our days and nights and could we possibly find normal life in you know, normal education. Having said that, I do think that this is a moment for talking and teaching about citizenship in a whole different way. The exercise that I do with my students in my citizenship class every year, in which we draw concentric circles, and who is closest in that you feel the most responsibility for, and you would do the most for, and you would sacrifice the most for, and then successive layers as you move out. All of this has said to us that we have a level of responsibility for and connection to each other in a much broader way than we might have thought of. And the person you sit next to on the airplane, or cough on in the line the supermarket is now somebody and um and we've really tried in our school to talk to our kids about what's now being called social distancing so again our kids went into quarantine at a time when the rest of the world was living normal life and we spent 14 days on and off but in quarantine and thought we were coming out yay now we can go back to living our lives only to discover that we were coming out into a world of social distancing and shutdowns and everything else and we held a school-wide town hall meeting the day before we came off of quarantine to talk to the students about why it was so important for them to maintain social distancing and talk to them about it as being an ethos of citizenship. That is what we do to share and responsibility for an obligation to the collective, even as we sit at home. So I guess that's a way of saying that both there is a real desire for things to be normal and not to turn every lesson, every conversation, every class into this. But, you know, I also teach a Machshevet Yisrael class, a Jewish philosophy class. We were just finishing the unit on theodicy by reading some 20th century Jewish thinkers who say, the question is not, why, God, did you do this to me? The relevant question you should ask is, what are we as people called to do in response to the situation that we found ourselves in? And when I'm teaching that to my students on Zoom yesterday, it was really the, the, the connections to their lives and to what they're living right now were totally unavoidable. And that was the conversation we ended up having. Yeah, one of my kids at home was in that quarantine for 14 days that got temporarily lifted and then reintroduced again. And it reminded me of the story in Babylonian Talmud Shabbat of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, a famous, somewhat misanthropic sage who, who lives in a cave for 12 years, actually in a period of persecution to escape the persecution. He lives there with his son and they leave the cave and turns out they leave the cave prematurely and then they get sent back into the cave. And it's very clear that the first phase of leaving the cave looked like reward and then it ultimately becomes punishment to stay in the cave. And so it felt in that moment of leaving the house and then having to go back in like a uh, well, we weren't, we weren't quite there long enough. It's also fascinating because that story is a story about a certain kind of citizenship and how you relate to the government. Because why he gets sent to the cave in the first place is because they're having a debate as to whether the Roman rulers are good or they're not good based on their investment in public goods and public welfare. They're building bathhouses and aqueducts. And are they doing it because they care about us or are they just doing it for their own benefit? And a result of the way Rabbi Shimon spoke about the Roman rulers, he ends up having to flee into the cave. Great. So we'll attach that text to this podcast for those of you following on iTunes or Spotify so you can read along uh, with what we're referencing here. But let's, let's stay on government for a second because, Rifka, one of the things that I saw and I'm sure you experienced was this odd phenomenon that uh, this one uh, Orthodox high school in the Bronx was in direct communication with the governor's office. And what was actually kind of amazing was that I sensed, I just kind of intuited that because 
the school was in connection with the governor's office. It had a lot of leverage with the governor's office, which is why in the school town meetings, you had representatives from the governor's office, state senators coming to speak on the town meetings to the parents uh, in the school. But the, the dark underbelly of that, which became very visible to me, was it's really not clear who's, who's, uh, who's running the show here. There were very public conflicts in New York between uh, Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo and clear public disagreements about whether the schools should remain open or closed. And so each institutional leader, every private school leader, had to figure out, are we listening to the mayor? Are we listening to the governor? Or at your own peril, are you listening to the federal government? <laughs> and uh, I saw in, an, in the context of our own institution that my colleagues and I who were trying to figure out should we stay open at Hartman? Should we require people to be uh, in the office? We were basically doing our own research with public health experts who we happen to know. And so it was a very confusing time in terms of governance. But, Daniil, I sense that in Israel there is a different culture. I kind of intuited from my colleagues, from you and others, that there was a clearer sense of, of someone being in charge of a government and maybe even a culture of of responding collectively to the rules that are there. So I'm curious what the experience has been like on the Israel side, especially for our American listeners, on what happens when a country can actually think of itself as being, uh, as I alluded to before, something of a fortress and being a place where you can establish a certain set of rules and norms and people are by and large going to follow them. You know, everything is a mixed blessing. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. One of the great advantages, and you're right, is that we didn't have to get up in the morning and to say, what do we need to do? The country put together a group of first-rate experts, and they sat at each stage and said, okay, ladies and gentlemen, this is what you have to do. And uh, there was a clear sense that serious people are taking our safety very seriously, and we, are, we believe that government is not the problem. Government can be the solution. And that centralized organizations will enable a country to deal with issues collectively. And um, I was very grateful for that. I was grateful for the government. I was grateful for the Ministry of Health. I was grateful for the Prime Minister, who took upon himself the role of educator, um, because sometimes that's what the leader needs to do. How do I make people be aware of the dangers without being hysterical, have a sense that things are under control? And uh, that was very, very helpful in the first week or so. But as time is progressing, Part of what you begin to see is that you don't know where the leadership are caring exclusively for the well-being of the country or where they're also now trying to market in a way which feeds their own political um, needs and egos. It's a fine line. Part of it is beginning to cross and then you're getting a little nervous. And what you find is that when you trusted so much the larger collective, you didn't have to build the responsibility of your own. Like, what's your job? I didn't have to think about what my job was. I didn't have to think about what I, what I need to do. It's very comforting when there's the expert. But what happens when maybe the expert's not doing it right? Well, what types of checks and balances do you need also on the expert? And so what you have is, uh, is, uh, you know, the TV is the, is the modern era Hazan, you know, leads the prayer. We all sit there. And the prime minister and the various people come and analyze and we get our rules for the day. And this day we're doing this and tomorrow we're going to go one step. Somewhere along the line, you might ask the question, why are we doing the step tomorrow? Why don't we do the step three days beforehand? But you've gotten so comfortable to giving over responsibility to the government that you aren't necessarily doing all that you're doing. And the one thing we do know 
is that power also corrupts. Nobody, none of us. That's the inherent reality of, of, of human nature. None of us can ever transcend interest and a whole myriad of other concerns that aren't always pure. And so as the prime minister gets up every day and says, we are the best in the world. We're the best in the world. We're the best in the world. And you wonder, you know, and you look at the graphs. Are we really the best in the world? We're testing more than anybody else in the world. Really? We are, our announcements are higher than anywhere else in the world. But actually what we're testing is not higher than anywhere else in the world. And there's a gap between the two. And somewhere there, there has to be a, a conversation between leadership and individual responsibility. And it was an interesting learning experience because in times of crisis, you want somebody who has the total picture. But in democracy, you're never supposed to give that completely over to somebody. So there was something very comforting, something very powerful, something very healthy. But at the same time, the individual responsibility was lagging a little behind. And I think it's starting to catch up now, especially as we're seeing other manifestations of, uh, of government decisions that clearly have nothing to do with the virus itself. And so it's wonderful having a national government um, checks and balances. It's interesting, Danielle, that the United States of America, we're approaching this challenge from rather the opposite side, where you're talking about a strong, powerful, and competent governmental response, which then you ask whether that crowds out individual leadership or at what point perhaps we start to question the motivations behind the governmental response. In the United States, we were skewed rather much farther to the side of, as you said, towards individual institutions having to make decisions in the absence of any kind of clear governmental response. Uh, there was no sense of unifying or inspiring leadership that we could rally behind. And we were sitting in our quarantine on Friday, I want to say March 6th, listening to the President of the United States at the CDC say, and anyone who needs a test can get one, while our lived experience was that that was absolutely false. And no tests were available at that point, or almost no tests were available at that point. So a gap between, we say, we're testing number one, and really we're not quite number one because not everybody, and the reality that we were experiencing. And so it sounds like we were coming at these questions of, of individual responsibility and governmental authority from pretty far opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah, I would add to that. I, I can't tell sometimes whether the, the analogy and the contrast between these two societies, and many of us as American Jews feel an affinity to both of these stories, and sometimes deeply at home in one or the other, and sometimes a great deal of foreignness. So I've been thinking about the analogies and the contrasts in both Israeli Jewish society and in America more broadly. There is also a deep, mavericky kind of personal rights orientation uh, you know, put any governmental order out to the American people and you'll have viral videos like the one that's been going around about spring break in Florida uh, and the resistance to it must be overblown. And in Israel, you know, try standing in a line and you'll see how limited people are in terms of their respect for the rule of law. But there does seem to be one big difference, which is Israel has a much longer and, and more recent track record of existential crises that have taken place in their borders. And there is a culture in Israel of collective mobilization when there's a perception of existential threat. If you've been in Israel during a war, you feel that. And people do take responsibility for each other. They do trust the government around life and death decisions. I think it's something that American Jews who are critical of Israeli electorate really do not fully grasp 
is the, the willingness to tolerate even what you see as a corrupt government, <laughs> because if you think they actually have your interest, when, the, when push comes to shove, there's an existential crisis, they're in your corner, then you'll give over a lot of your own autonomy to them. I, I do sense that there's a little bit of difference. And I, I'm curious, Daniel, you talked a little bit about the government side, but whether that story is also true on the individual kind of uh, end user. Very much so. The end of the day, most Israelis believe that our governments will never cross the line between their pure political interests and the well-being of the country. And whether I am pro-Netanyahu or not, throughout his leadership, I could be critical of various things that I might disagree with. But he has proven over and again, to the satisfaction both of myself and most Israelis, that there is that core commitment in times of crisis. And also, for most Israelis, we're used to being drafted. We've all served in an army. We've all done reserve duty. The idea of limiting your own individual rights for the sake of the collective is one of the fundamental realities of Israeli society. The, the act of sending your child to war, there's nothing more, a greater violation. And therefore, there is a overall willingness, once people realize how serious it is, to take upon themselves whatever they individually need to do. Part of what I'm saying is that part of what we individually need to do is not only be willing to take upon ourselves hardships, but we also have to take upon ourselves the responsibility of watching our governments, because every government needs those checks and balances, needs that oversight. I think there's a worrying trend for us to think about here in the American Jewish community, and then two, two shifts that we might pay attention to going forward over the next couple of weeks and months. The worrying trend is what we talked about before, where it does seem as though uh, Jewish communal institutions are, are having to figure it out for themselves, uh, seeing schools having to negotiate for themselves, uh, JCCs, individual Hillels, and, uh, and to take stock of the fact that you know 30 to 40 years of decentralizing a Jewish community is going to result in a situation situation like this. And that's a real worrying trend because it forces enormous personal responsibility on individual leaders like you, Rivka, and your colleagues to have to make these decisions without necessarily having a trust in a, in a broader system, whether that's a federal government or even centralized uh, Jewish communal institutions. But I think there's two other trends we might continue to look at in America that may shift and evolve significantly and maybe start to resemble a little bit more of what Daniel was talking about with respect to Israel. One is, it was just interesting, I don't know whether it's studyable yet, but interesting to note that the primaries came and went again this week between Biden and Sanders, and they were a runaway win for Biden. And part of that probably has to do with, you know, the perception that this is a, a runaway train uh, in a Democratic Party. But I wonder whether it's a little bit of uh, the Democratic electorate saying uh, it was all well and good to vote for the socialist anarchist when we didn't have a crisis, but maybe when there's actually an existential crisis. We want someone who's been in executive leadership before. I wonder whether there may be a shift among the American people towards the recognition of the real need for stronger institutions. And the second trend that I think it's worth us watching is uh, in moments like this, do we see a reorientation towards community towards collective uh, mobilization, collective responsibility. I see some burgeoning trends around this in the Jewish communal landscape, and we certainly see it at the local level. And it would be really interesting to continue watching to see whether we as Americans, we as American Jews, uh, start enacting the very behaviors that we, we kind of hope would exist in order for us to be able to weather a crisis like this.
This week we're reading a sermon delivered by Rabbi Nisim Garandi, known as the Ran, a rabbi in Barcelona in the middle and second half of the 14th century, uh, about the separation of powers between the realm of the religious and the realm of the political. There's a long intellectual history on Jews, especially diaspora Jews, trying to struggle with what it means to be something of a separate religious community operating within diasporic communities in which Jews experienced various levels of autonomy, sovereignty, uh, or coercion uh, under the realm of religious and political leaders. And so it's a long, there's a long history of Jews trying to figure out to what extent do we take seriously the authority of the civil regime in which we happen to be living? Uh, do we give it religious authority? Uh, or do we treat it as a kind of coercive mechanism that we have to operate within, but we don't really treat it as being part of the religious worldview uh, that we have? Duran writes, I'll just read a couple of excerpts, but the text is available to you online. Every nation needs some sort of of political organization. The Hebrew phrase is Yishuv Medini for this purpose, since, as the wise man put it, even a gang of thieves will subscribe to justice among themselves. Israel, like any other nation, needs this as well. But Israel needs it for one other reason as well, to uphold the laws of the Torah and punish those who deserve flogging or capital punishment for disobeying those laws, even if their transgression in no way undermines political order. In other words, the Jewish people actually need civil authorities to be able to punish and police what we consider to be the transgressions of our own religious obligations. Civil infrastructure essentially license the judicial system that the Jewish community has. And he gives two separate uh, lines of, as he understands the division of power, first, the Ron goes on to say, he commanded that magistrates be appointed to judge according to the truly just law. In other words, the verse tells us that he, God, set forth the purpose of their appointment and the scope of their authority. They were appointed to judge the people according to a law that was in itself truly just, and their jurisdiction is not to exceed that. So the work of the judges is the business of Torah. That's what we call a Beit Din. Um, and that it relates to God's authority, God's laws, and their authority comes from God. But second, since political order cannot be fully established by these means alone, God further provided for its establishment by commanding the appointment of a king. So here, too, the authority of the king comes from God, but it winds up taking up a different, in some ways, civil or even secular realm of authority because it's kept separate from the judicial system, which is actually managing God's Torah. And in this context, the Ron sets out a deep separation of powers between the what we might call the political and we might call the religious. I think those terms probably are, are weaker than we would want in these purposes, but at least a recognition that a Jewish political tradition has to take seriously the meaning and value of government, even when it seems to operate as a different realm from the religious needs of the people. I'm curious for us to read this this week uh, in relationship to two big questions about separation of powers and about the nature of authority that the COVID-19 crisis has brought about, both in America and Israel. And the first that I want us to look at and think about relates to some reporting that has taken place uh, about the ultra-Orthodox community and some signs that in certain communities, there was in Borough Park and other places in Israel as well, a kind of resistance by the religious leadership of a number of ultra-Orthodox communities, not all of them, uh, to the COVID-19 regulations and the continued uh, large gatherings in the form of prayer gatherings or weddings or otherwise, either as an act of resistance 
we don't follow these regulations, or with the idea that our religious obligations are more significant. They trump the civil obligations that are put forth by public authorities in the interest of public health. And this prompts a question of uh, to what extent does does this notion of a separation of powers, the necessity of separation of powers, constitute a universal ideal for the Jewish people? So, so Rifka, I'm curious um, for your reflections as you're watching both this semi-controversy that's emerged in, in Jewish media around this question to both help us understand what you see taking place in these communities, and if you can, to give us a little bit of the internal logic around the question of, of civil and secular authority, uh, the meaning of civil and secular authority, as it might be interpreted by these communities that might or might not align with the position of the run. I appreciate you're asking me for the internal logic of these communities. I actually want to talk about a little bit of a different piece of the internal logic before we talk about the religious and the secular. Uh, my connection to this community is that I grew up in the black hat Lithuanian yeshiva world, the non-Hasidic ultra-Orthodox world, I guess is the best way to put it, and my entire family, my siblings all live in that world. I had about a week's worth, maybe five days worth of talking to my siblings, where they would tell me that their kids were still going to school, their synagogues were still open, their husbands and sons were still going to learn Torah and Batei Midrash, and I'd be, I'd start every conversation promising myself that I wouldn't yell at them, and by the end of the conversation, I'd be yelling at them, um, so that didn't work so well. But there were a few interesting things that emerged for me from those conversations, that reminded me that there is a paradigm issue here. There is a way you view the world here. And it's not about we can flout the secular authorities because what do the Gaim know? My sister said to me, I am genuinely worried about the implications, about the consequences of shutting down all communal prayer and Torah learning. And she meant like inviting God's judgment on the world by shutting down communal prayer and Torah learning. I don't live in that theological universe. I don't, I don't see the world that way. If we follow the dictates for quarantine, we are potentially inviting divine judgment. But if you do, there's much more at stake here than just thumbing your nose at civil authorities. So I think that's one thing that I want to say in terms of the internal logic of this within that community. Something else that I would say, which might speak a little bit more to the division between civil and religious authorities, but I think there's also a sense of, sure, people are quick to shut down shuls because they don't really get it or they don't really see it as important. As long as the New York City public schools were still open and functioning, which was the case until this week, it was a very heavy lift to tell somebody in the ultra-Orthodox world, no, it's really important that your synagogues close. I don't know. Public schools that have 4,000 students in them can stay open. can't be that dangerous to go to Shabbos morning davening. And I think that sense that maybe people who didn't understand the genuine importance of both the religious acts of worship and the communal acts of gathering, people who didn't understand the importance of that were quick to dismiss it and say, okay, shul should be out when you know, New York City public schools weren't out. And so I think that understanding that there was more going on in how that community looked at these issues than just we don't have to listen to secular authorities or what do they know or an act of defiance, but that there was real concern about both the religious implications of shutting down and also concern about whether people maybe were being a little bit too dismissive about what it meant to shut down. These institutions drove that. Um, having said that, as of last night, the Council of Torah Sages of Agudas Israel of America came out with a very strong statement calling for the shutting down of all schools, of all shuls, of all Batei Midrash, of all houses of learning. And again, my understanding, certainly from the non-Hasidic part of the ultra-Orthodox world, is that that is, that is now happening, that has happened. can't speak to what's going on in the Hasidic world. It's interesting to note here the distinction between the way that the ultra-Orthodox community operates in Israel and America as we look at a text like this, because in America, 
all Jews essentially would and will relate to the secular authorities as just that, uh, secular authorities. Uh, and therefore, your trust of your institution and your communal leaders, your judges, your Bateidin, your Rashi Yeshiva, that's your religious orientation. And America makes possible through a civil secular orientation that you can thrive in those religious communities. There doesn't necessarily have to be a tension between the two, because unlike what, the way that Iran is describing the separation of powers, where God is actually the force operating behind both. Uh, one of these is genuinely secular and one of these is religious. State of Israel actually is closer to the Ron's depiction for ultra-Orthodox Jews because they are operating as much more as uh, citizens, as part of the mainstream, uh, and even part of the government of the secular government in Israel. And the visual that uh, I was watching, Daniel, this week was of the health minister, uh, Litzman, who's an ultra-Orthodox uh, Jew, and some controversies that were in the news about whether he was speaking with one message to the non-ultra-Orthodox community about a certain set of regulations and secretly telling his own communities and the ultra-Orthodox communities that they didn't have to follow that. So can you help us understand what's taking place there and whether you think that that correlates more closely to the theory of these realms that the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel expresses? I think we have to add to the conversation not only a separation of powers, but also a separation of identities and communities. I think part of what's happened in Israel over the last 10 years with the clear alignment of the ultra-Orthodox parties with the Likud and seeing them basically as themselves as one party, they buy into the secular authority as being conducive to the religious. And I think a lot of the tension, which was classic, has stopped over the last decade. But that said, the Haredi community's core identity is built around some measures of separation. Not of power, but of their identity. And I think while they are now, most Haredim in Israel are Zionists in the sense of accepting the power of the country, they're not Israeli. Or they're Haredi Israeli as distinct from other Israeli. And I think part of this is a reaffirmation of, you know, I'm not the same as everybody else. I don't dress the same way. I don't act the same way. And I'm also not susceptible to the same things. There's almost a rebelliousness, a childish rebelliousness. You could see it in the wedding. You know, Rivka, you were so correct that there is a weight to what does it mean to shut down a place of study and a place of dubbing. But a wedding, to flout it in that sense, it's I'm not part of you. I function by my own rules. And I would say there's more a sense of, of societal distancing. This goes back to one of the issues we spoke about before, and we are going to overcome this when we understand that in our societies, we truly are in the same boat together. And only to the extent that there is a deep sense of collective responsibility, because anybody could affect anybody. Infect, affect and infect. And it requires of you to realize, oh, you know, that's everybody's problem, it's not my problem. And it's interesting, a parallel to this is not the Haredi community, but is the Israeli Arab community. Our political discourse has thrived on separating us into tribes and into partisanship. But times like this, it requires of individuals to transcend it. But what happens if they've been educated and it's been reinforced over and over again? It's almost countercultural. And so it takes time to readjust. And it's hard for people, you know, for a prime minister to get up and say, we're all in this together, when a big part of his leadership has been, there is no together. There's me versus you, us versus them. 
And I think you see that dimension coming forth principally in the Israeli ultra-Orthodox community. I want to say something else about the separation of powers, which is true in the ultra-Orthodox communities, both in Israel and in the United States. And that is unlike what the Ron is suggesting about the separation of powers between the religious authorities who handle religious law and someone else in society who manages good governance and policy. For the last number of decades, a defining feature of ultra-Orthodox communal life has been fealty to the ideology of Das Torah, which is the idea that Torah sages are the best people to go to, not only for guidance about Torah questions, but for guidance about all life questions, which means that if you want to know whether to shut down a school in a pandemic, you don't ask an epidemiologist, you ask the Council of Torah Sages. I suspect, I'm completely making this up, but I suspect in their hearts of hearts, many of the members of the Council of Torah Sages didn't want to be asked whether to shut down the school or not. I'm making that up, but I think I'm right. They actually wanted to be able to rely on the epidemiologists, but having created this situation over many, many decades of tending and nurturing this ideology, you have now gotten yourself to the place where you are the ones who are expected to make that call. This whole question of who gets to make the call, it's not the state health department, it's not the mayor, it's not the governor, it's the rabbis who are supposed to be the ones to make the call, which is both a tremendous amount of responsibility for them to carry, but it also means that until they were willing to make the call, the schools did not get closed. And they were were, in fact, physicians within the ultra-Orthodox community who were saying to their own communities, we need to shut this all down. But until the rabbinic leadership got behind that, that wasn't going to happen. At some point in one of my conversations with one of my sisters, I expressed my intense frustration or, or really even concern that their kids' schools were still open and their kids were still going to school. And my sister stopped and said to me, well, that's what it means to believe in Das Torah. And she, she meant that as a serious statement of her belief system, that if the rabbinic Torah leadership said the school should stay open, then the school should stay open, which I think plays to why schools, schools, everything else are open, and also plays to who is responsible, who is decision-making, who owns this, and what the communal leadership structure looks like. From a political theory perspective, what's so interesting and ironic about that, and I think you're, I think you're spot on, Rivka, is that what it means is that basically the Haredi community are operating as monarchists. It's just that the monarchists are not the civil authority. That's the monarchy to which you yield that power. It's the Rashi Yeshiva. It's the Moetzes, right? It's the religious leadership that actually has monarchic influence. And that means that you essentially accede to one central uh, institution, both monarchic leadership to make essentially civil decisions, as well as religious authority. What that might mean then is that the only people um, really alive today in the Jewish polity who live according to basically the strictures of the Ran are what we might call like real classic religious Zionists who believe that the authority of the state is something that comes from God, right? That's a big piece of religious Zionism. And simultaneously that there has to be a court of law to adjudicate Jewish religious law and that those should be in some ways separate from one another. But it sounds almost like that your description of the Haredi community is monarchic in its orientation, but not in giving political authority to the quote-unquote monarch, in this case the government, but actually giving it to its uh, religious leadership. So let's talk a little bit about the second site of uh, the question of division of powers, which is less about uh, religion and state, but it is a division of powers question. And it is the current, maybe impending, uh, non-constitutional crisis taking place in Israel right now. Because the court system has been suspended in Israel, and the Knesset has been functionally dissolved or put on hold, uh, the Prime Minister's pending indictment for various charges is also put on hold. And with that, also, the ability of the rest of the parliament to constitute a parliamentary alternative to build a different government basically can't happen. This is 
many Israelis would say, basically good for the ongoing running of the country in the middle of a crisis. But I think many Israelis would also say this doesn't bode well for the capacity of democracy and government to do what it's supposed to do for the court system to actually hold the prime minister accountable and to make possible a peaceful transition of power. So, Danielle, I wonder if you could share a little bit of your thoughts on on the question of separation of powers as it relates to this moment in Israel, what the political mood is like in Israeli society, but really how might we conceptually think about this moment? Is it really just an urgent kind of crisis moment, or is there something bigger taking place here in Israeli governance? There's something bigger and something smaller happening, both at the same time. Not at this moment, but over the last two years, there has been a significant erosion of some of the checks and balances. You know, we go back to the Ram, you know, or the system that uh, um, the independence of the king what happens when one court wants to judge the king and vice versa? You can have significant instability because at the end of the day, the king could win. Here, you have the courts, uh, you have attorney generals, you have the police, and then you have a government which declared war on them because the positions they took, even though they were all appointed by the prime minister, they took decisions that they felt were required by law and not as required for what was best for the political party. Now, what's happening now in the last few days, we don't know yet if it's a constitutional crisis. And I would say most Israelis that I speak to, and, and again, please remember that in these periods you don't speak to many Israelis, you, you watch them, you hear them in various mediums. Is it a constitutional crisis or is it a constitutional bump? The courts were closed, they're not completely closed, but the courts were suspended not by the Minister of Justice, but the courts were suspended under the recommendation of the Director General of the Courts and the uh, Supreme Court Justice. How do you engage in ongoing trials and still maintain uh, social distancing? It's a real issue. How do you do that? And therefore, distinguishing most trials if they're delayed. So there isn't a constitutional crisis if Netanyahu's trial is delayed for a number of months. We can get to that. There are political ramifications to it, but that doesn't mean that the motivation was such. But when the, um, the Speaker of the Knesset is not willing to convene the Knesset, this has nothing to do with social distancing and maintaining uh, the safety of the community. And they've crossed the line, and there's pushback, and the courts are going to adjudicate this. And so you have this attempt, but it's going to get resolved by next week, I believe. So it's there's the beginning of, of an unrest. What you're seeing is not a constitutional crisis, but an erosion of confidence about the things that I spoke about earlier on. And that is, to what extent is the government solely and fully acting only as a result of public safety and public need, or where are its own interests coming into play? And the minute that line is not maintained, you're failing at your fundamental duty. And so sometimes, you know, in an ideal form, this is not exactly the run, the reason for divisions of power is to keep each one honest. For the run, it wasn't about keeping each one honest, it was about giving each one its own domain. And in many ways, the division of powers that we have is an anti-run position. Because we don't believe that you do this and we do that. No. By having these checks and balances, I want the law to, to govern the king. I want each one to look at each other and to help repair where, where you're going wrong. Sometimes you have to make a bigger move. But it's not that I do it, you do it, but I serve as that corrective. And part of what you have in Israel today is a breaking down of that. And it'll be interesting to see 
Um, see, if at the end of the day it breaks down again, that those who are blue and white, etc., supporters see it as a constitutional crisis, and those who are Likud and its bloc supporters see it as, oh, come on, this is a crisis, we know it needs to be done, stop overdoing it, we're going to waste the moment. But I think, in fact, there is an important moment here in which we ask ourselves, how are we best served as a country in crisis moments? And how does caring for individual rights and how does making sure that we deal with um, policies of, for example, uh, tapping phones, how do we make sure that somebody is watching? Because there's a constitutional crisis, it doesn't mean we're not a democracy. One of the most remarkable things about Israel is that it has maintained democratic institutions under existential crises from the first moment that it was formed. And there's no other democracy in the world which has had to deal with that tension. Right now, as in the past, there's some move. I don't think it's a crisis yet, but it's moving off of the right type of balance, which, which is at the core of Israeli society. And it will be a big test to see whether we heal ourselves or not. So embedded in that is that separation of powers is not merely a structural piece, but it also is a guarantee of a certain measure of sincerity. Do we actually trust our politicians are acting in the collective interest rather than their own? Uh, Rivka, let me just uh, conclude with you and say what's one, one wish that you would have of our uh, political leaders in a moment like this? What's one thing you're looking for, hoping for, to see from our political leaders as we try to weather this crisis? I would love to see in the United States some of what we heard in Israel, at least from Prime Minister Netanyahu's first speech about it, which is the kind of big rallying, giving people a framework in which there is meaning in this, explaining to people how sitting alone in your house by yourself is actually an act of citizenship and solidarity and taking care of somebody else. So it doesn't just become, why should I do it if I get sick, I won't be that badly off, or why should I do that, I'm really afraid of my livelihood, or why should I do it, I don't understand what the point of this is, it seems like an arbitrary rule of a mayor or a governor bigfooting my life, but is here, let me give you a context or a framework in which this makes sense, in which this is a value, in which this is something you want to do. We tell ourselves fake stories about how, you know, during World War II, the American people were all just moved to great acts of patriotism and solidarity and citizenship. They weren't just moved. There were entire government offices devoted to getting that message out and inculcating that and teaching that and passing that on. It doesn't just happen by itself. Those are messages that we can choose to teach and to communicate. So I can choose to do them at the school level or at the classroom level, but I think it would be enormously helpful if somebody at the national level were communicating these kinds of messages, not just clear messages about numbers of tests and rate of, ins- of infection spread, but a broader sense of purpose, of shared, you know, we're in this together, and really of citizenship as we go through the undoubtedly very tough times and very tough circumstances that are going to be needed to tackle this. Yeah, I think I can echo that, the call for citizenship, the call for collectivity, and really the setting aside of, to the extent that is possible, the personal agendas of our various politicians, watching politicians in public conflict without being able to discern whether they actually have public health interests in mind or whether it's because they want to be credited for having said the right thing at the right time is really quite devastating. It really deeply erodes the possibility of public trust. I think those two, those two messages, a vision for sincerity out of politicians and a vision for a call for citizenship and collectivity are two powerful messages for this week. Well, thanks for listening to our show and special thanks to our guests this week, Dr. Rivka Press-Schwartz and Rabbi Daniel Hartman. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced and edited this week by David C. Kalman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music courtesy of So Called. 
To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org, and you can also write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and anywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and healthy.